Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Jez Weston and Rowan McMahon have been scouring New Zealand seeking the best and the brightest ways to address climate change, or more specifically, to find technologies that offer the greatest emissions reductions for the lowest cost in the least amount of time. These two environmental consultants have identified at least 70 projects that fit the bill. So I'm curious to know what's in and what's out and what they're still looking for. So uh, Jez and Rowan, thanks for joining me on This Climate Business. Jess, why don't we um, start with you? You've identified 70 projects. Why 70? Is there something special about that number? I think everywhere we look, we are finding projects that can make a difference, which is actually great because this is is a sufficient challenge that it has to be a shift in, in the entire economy. And that's also matched by people's growing desires for change. So literally every sector we dive into, we find people that are going, hey, things need to be different. Here's a bunch of ideas. Let's get on with it. And so 70 is not a magic number in itself. It's just that it was quite, I don't know, quite easy for you to find at least 70. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we sort of started just by looking across the economy, going, okay, where are the emissions? Where's the chances to make some big differences? But also where's some opportunities where, you know, in, in areas where there's not necessarily huge amounts of emissions at a gross level, but there are opportunities for, for change. So that, you know, 70, the, the number's going up as we keep on looking and, and finding more uh, bright ideas that are out there. That's fantastic. Some of the 70, um, Vincent, might even be uh, kind of groups of projects. And, you know, once we do some more, more analysis on them, there are actually whole, whole categories that could be a further eight or 10 uh, project ideas. Yeah. So tell us about the criteria, Ron. What, you know, what, what makes what makes a, a good project uh, for this particular list? Well, ideally, it would be something that has a large um, amount of emissions compared to New Zealand's total emissions. Um, in the first instance, so you're looking at a large size of the prize to aim at, and then you'd be looking at a large potential to reduce that level of emissions by applying some new technology or some something that we can um, hopefully rustle up. Um, that's really the challenge. But I mean, I, I like to start with the large parts of the addressable market. The problem being that some of those uh, large uh, prizes, if you like, in terms of emissions reduction have been obvious for quite a while. So people have been looking for um, those uh, in, in those target areas, if you like, for a while. And, and there are generally no silver bullets. Uh, disappointing to hear. So we uh, let, let's get to the list. What's on the top of the list? Um, what, what, what would you say your top three or four? I'd say that just in terms of categories, there's there's three really big things where where the options are, are pretty accessible, and and the first is so we're pushing towards um, 100% renewable generation in in, in New Zealand. Um, it's great that we've got lots of hydro, lots of wind, lots of geothermal, lots of solar, but the the the, the challenge there is that to have enough power on the worst kind of day for all of that you know if you've got a cold still winter night in a dry winter yeah to have a system that can do 
enough to cope with that, then on an average day, you've actually got a lot of excess. So there's a lot of desire to be storing that power. Now, that could be a really big project around pumped hydro. It could be around really big grid-scale batteries, as we've seen in, in South Australia. There's a whole bunch of other advantages to that. Um, pumped hydro is great for storing for, like, a season. Batteries are great for storing for, like, a day. And, and so is there a gap in the middle where we're sort of storing for a shorter, you know, moderate amount of time? Um, quite possibly. That's one we want to explore. Um, so storing electricity is a big one. Um, electrifying transport. Transport's a huge amount of our emissions. Mm. There's starting to be solutions there. You know, you can go and buy an electric bike right now. I've got myself an electric motorbike. You can go and buy a, a Tesla. Electric trucks are coming. Um, and so there's going to be a huge bunch of opportunities there. And I think that that's going to, I think the transport fleet's going to change over very, very fast, simply because um, electric vehicles, they're so much cheaper to run. They're really easy. They're very reliable. People just like them. And the third thing is just electrifying process heat, so you know, industrial heat. Um, right now, we have something like 1.6 million tonnes of carbon emissions from using coal to dry milk. Now, that's, that's a massive chunk of our, our, our emissions. Um, so electrifying that, shifting to heat pumps, various other technologies coming online. Again, there's, there's some easy wins to be done there, I think. So you've you've looked rather than looked at specific technologies, uh, you you are looking at uh, kind of problem sectors and then saying, look, in this area we've identified a problem such as um, um, I don't know electrifying the fleet. Uh, bring us your solutions. Is that kind of the approach, or are you actively um, sort of wanting to launch businesses into this space? It's it's got to be two sided. You want to have the t- you know, new technology creates new options but you've got to kind of start with a, a business problem and, and, and say, okay, so this new solution, does it actually fit with what you need? Is it better? Um, one of the things that I've, have, that's really been very positive for me at least is seeing just the growth of electric bicycles. I think mm-hmm. in Wellington, you know, cycling is up by 40%. It's almost all electric bicycles. And yes, the carbon emissions are a hell of a lot lower, but it's just easier for people. You know, it makes the hills go away. And they go out and they get some fresh air. They haven't got to wait for a bus. They aren't stuck in traffic. whole bunch of benefits to that person. And then that's matched by a whole bunch of benefits at the, the, the city level. You've got um, less congestion. You've got less road noise. Um, and then a whole bunch of benefits at the, the, the climate level. So for so many of these opportunities, the, there's, there's multiple drivers, mm. all of which come together to create some really great investable opportunities. Mm. Rowan, what do you think are the worst ideas? Because there are plenty of ideas out there, aren't there, for reducing emissions? And, and, and some of them, by the sound of it, don't make it to the top of your list. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm inspired by Cartman from South Park, who said there are, actually it was his teacher, wasn't it, who said uh, there are no stupid ideas or stupid questions, actually said, uh, only stupid people. <laughs> um, so there's the, the people, if people are putting up a well-intended effort to... to um, to address climate change, that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that some projects just fail feasibility. Um, you know, that as, you, as, as you sort of parse them and you say, "Is this is this achievable? Is this financially viable? What would it take to make this work?" Some of them end up with regulatory problems or massive pricing problems, or they just seem unnecessary. There, mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a much shorter way to the finish line. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think of them as bad ideas, but um, some of them simply don't work in our context. So, I mean, we've mm. looked at, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Project Drawdown, but it's a fascinating um, website and uh, textbook that you can purchase if you uh, believe in hard copy resources um, that, be- that basically has gone around the world and has shopped for as many different um, means of mitigating climate change as possible. And some of those are awesome for the New Zealand context or possibly the Australian context, um, but actually some of them aren't. And so we look at those and we go, well, that's that's interesting. If we were sponsoring a foreign aid program, for example, um, they might be really uh, very pertinent. Um, so one example, not a bad idea, just something that we doesn't, don't see works in our context, is uh, clean cook stoves. Um, so we, we just don't have enough dirty old wood stoves um, to make that viable as a project. But take that to Africa, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of them, perhaps millions of them, and turning some of those over to electricity or to a more efficiently burning biomass um, uh, is hugely beneficial to the uh, to greenhouse emissions. So it's not that they're bad, it's just that they don't work in our context. There are others okay. that possibly are just genuinely bad, but um, we haven't stumbled on too many that are bad at the idea level. It's just that they they need further development, and some of those those challenges just maybe will never be will never be addressed. I can think of a couple that I have seen over the years as a technology reporter, and thought you know theoretically or intellectually it makes it has some appeal. I'm I'm thinking, for instance, um, seaweed. You know, seaweed is a fantastic source of um, oh, it's a it, you know it's a it, it absorbs uh, carbon dioxide. Um, it can grow, um, you know, in massive um, proportions without really affecting the environment, or at least affecting the the human environment. Um, occasionally, you sort of see this pop up as an idea. Um, in fact, there was a, a massive TED talk about it. it's had millions of views. Uh, has seaweed made the list? It's it's on there for. A couple of things. One that I'm really positive about, one that I'm actually really negative about. Um, seaweed, growing it, harvesting it, using that for um, fertilizer. I mean, that's a great way of, of you know, closing your nutrient cycle, something like phosphorus. We use lots of it on the land. It gets washed into the ocean. You want some way of getting it back on out of the ocean because that's, that's, that's a really useful element. Um, so that's, that's sort of happening and growing. Um, the other, I keep seeing it presented as a, a silver bullet for solving methane emissions from cattle. Um, you know, cattle, they do a lot of burping and farting, and it's a really big problem in New Zealand. Like, our livestock emissions are something like 27 million tonnes uh, of emissions out of, like, 80 million gross. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a really big chunk. Mm-hmm. And there's been some very positive press saying that, you know, this is the silver bullet which will solve um, those emissions. I think people are doing, they're being very hopeful there. That's not backed by the the research yet. There's a whole bunch of different problems with it. Um, it's not very good for the cattle, possibly not very good for the milk. Um, it, 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 yeah, the, the, the chemicals that have that impact on the, the bacteria in the rumen in the cattle, um, those chemicals are really nasty. They're ozone depleting, they're possibly cancerous. Um, and if you actually were using them, then you wouldn't use seaweed to make them. You'd just make them in a, in a synthetic process. It'd be much, much cheaper. Um, but, I mean, we, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of money going into that. Um, it deserves some serious thinking and some proper research. 
but I think people are being very over-optimistic there. Understandably, mm. people want silver bullets, and agriculture is hard. And, 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 you know, <sighs> methane inhibitors, New Zealand's got a big research program on those. It's been going for 20 years. We've learned a hell of a lot about the, the rumen in cattle. What we've learned is it's actually really complicated, and it doesn't like to change. So the idea that there'll be a, a simple solution to that, which will suddenly reduce the emissions from cattle, um, that's, yeah, that's, that's in the, the, the hopeful stage, but I'm, I'm not counting on that in the near future. Mm, is that why, well, we had a bit of feedback there. Um, is, is that why uh, agriculture really hasn't pushed up into, your, into that top three or four that you just mentioned as uh, areas that are deserving of being in your, your, uh, your list of, in, in your top five? Yeah, I mean, agriculture is a huge source of emissions in New Zealand. It would be great if we could get that down. Uh, there are no great solutions. There's plenty of good solutions, um, whether that's, you know, capturing manure, using standoff pads, herd homes, better feeds, um, improved breeding of animals. I mean, that's, you know, improved breeding. New Zealand's got great genetics for, for you know, cattle and sheep. And that's delivering about 1% improvement per year, okay, which is necessary. But actually, we don't want 1% per year. If we're actually trying to avoid, you know, a climate catastrophe, then every step has got to be doing 5% per year, 8%, mm. maybe more than that. And you're not going to get that out of, out of breeding. Um, there, are, there are projects within agriculture that we're really keen that we'll, we think will make a difference. But overall, they don't add up to anywhere near the, the challenge that we've got. Another project you hear a lot about is carbon capture, and I see quite a lot of investment done in um, both uh, carbon capture at, a, at source, so capturing emissions straight from industrial processes, but also carbon capture as a, a way of extracting it out of the, just out of the air. R Rowan, uh, where is that at? And you see very mixed press about the effectiveness of uh, of capturing, particularly capturing it out of the air? Well, I think um, that's a good example of one of these categories that's actually a whole range of different projects and technologies. So, um, you know, to capture fugitive emissions from a geothermal plant, for example, I think is, is, a, is a great thing and not that hard and actually offers some potentially quite large quick wins. Um, capturing methane from a landfill, um, a lot of that is happening already, but not all landfills are tapped for their methane. And uh, some landfills, we uh, there's still actually a real lack of data about what the emissions could be that are coming from it because what's in the landfill isn't that well identified, unbelievably. Mm. Um, so there's definitely some wins in that neighbourhood. Um, carbon capture and storage in terms of uh, large fossil fuel projects, I view that as the um, more in the greenwash category personally myself. Uh, there's been um, some very large projects overseas where they've got the resource consent to proceed on the promise that they'll find ways to sequester the uh, CO2 and and somehow the, sequest the sequestration always seems to be a few years behind the extraction, um, but they're always working on it. So I think we're entitled to be a little sceptical about that. Um, 
and you know it would be good if it happens but the uh, the the um, specifications of the storage of that co2 in those massive underground reservoirs needs to be very very precise because you're talking about millions of tons equivalent and it has to be there permanently so um you know it has to be something that is that is truly um, permanent um, direct air capture we have looked at that um, I haven't um, studied that one particularly closely it sounds a little bit um, unlikely to me and Jess doesn't think it's a great one so Jess is pulling a face in fact <laughs> yeah can I, can I just mention one particular company here um, which is Hotline Labs and they if you are if you are running a big horticultural greenhouse you're growing you know peppers or tomatoes or whatever you want you want two things you want heating and you want extra carbon dioxide because that helps the plants grow. And right now, and this is you know, really big business. It's, it's, it's pretty small in New Zealand, um, but certainly you know, in Denmark, there's just acres and acres of, of, of greenhouses. And so to get that heat and to get that carbon dioxide right now, most of them are just burning natural gas. Okay. So big emissions there. Um, hotline, I've got a technology where you can just burn biomass. Okay, so it could be forestry waste or, or, or waste from the greenhouse. Um, captures the carbon dioxide. You use the heat, generally at night, to heat your greenhouse so your plants are very happy. And then during the day, you release the carbon dioxide um, for your, your, your plants. So you're replacing natural gas, which is you know, high carbon emissions with um, biomass, which is all carbon neutral. That's a really great example of a, a Kiwi manufacturing company that they've got a technical lead, They've got a really clear market. Growers are screaming out for this stuff. That's the kind of niche stuff that can make a really big difference to emissions and be a really good company uh, for New Zealand. So that's that's the kind of company that we are looking for and, and really keen to invest in. I mean, it kind of highlights what you've described, the point of why are you putting faith in the markets and effectively in capitalism to bring these solutions. I mean, there is an argument that says capitalism is what's put us in this situation in the first place. What, what gives you the hope that more business and more investment and more technology is the solution? There's kind of a weak argument and a strong argument in response to that. And I would say that the, the weak argument is that, you know, capitalism is just a way of stating who gets to make decisions about the use of resources. So we are going where the money is. Some of them, yeah, a lot of these projects that can make a really big difference. We just need to get access to the capital for them. That's the weak argument. The, the, the strong argument is that actually, yeah, capitalism is a fundamental problem here. Um, and we need the politics to change. We need the politics to change very substantially. But that's slow. That's going to take time. And so if right now all we are doing is buying time for those political changes to take place, well, frankly, a catastrophe that's put off right now is just as good as a catastrophe that's avoided. So let's try and at least put off the catastrophe and give time for those changes to happen. How about you, Rowan? I kind of look at it without, um, you know, whether whether you're calling it capitalism or something else. Um, there's a need for the the economy and the whole of society to decarbonise. We've spent 200 years um, creating a fossil fuel economy, only to um, discover, um, you know, if we'd if we'd been reading Professor Arrhenius's uh, papers back in 1896, we would have uh, got onto this a little faster than we have. But we now know that um, we've created this massive problem. So, from an investment perspective, it, it it really has to be appealing because we don't have the luxury of another 200 years to um, create a, a, a low carbon or a no carbon 
um, economy. It has to happen. Um, I think the uh, great thing about doing this sort of work from New Zealand is that the regulatory settings and the policy settings are actually coming together quite well. Um, the Greens' announcement of a mandatory approach to um, climate financial disclosure and risks of, um, of climate for major investors is another step forward, another, another um, chip in the game that's going to help um, people to set the right price signals, the right investment signals. Um, it will basically uh, add to a, an environment where you've got increasing costs on carbon and also on ancillary um, environmental uh, sort of degrading factors like landfills um, and it will push more and more people to study our list of projects and uh, hopefully um, come help us with some of them. Where is that list of projects going to be published? Is it something that is open to the public or have you been commissioned to do this by a particular group? We're working with a, um, an established investment house on um, that uh, process. Um, it's a rolling list. It will keep, you know, it's out of date almost as soon as you hit save on the document um, <laughs> and that will keep being the case. Um, but we, we basically intend to turn that into an investment proposition for people who um, have, a, have a mind to, um, to help, you know, to help mitigate climate change, but also, frankly, to make money because we think that there is a, a proposition here. There are low-hanging fruit technologies are developing quite rapidly to um, mm. to deal mm. with that environment where you are having more policy certainty, more um, certainty of an increasing carbon price and more of a desire from a from an emitter's perspective to deal with their problems that they've created. So at the same time as you've got opportunities opening up in climate tech, um, you're also seeing pressure on funds to get out of fossil fuels, get out of um, oil and gas in particular. Uh, that those two trends must be converging to, so you're, you're really creating supply um, and um, at, at the same time, is there a sense that, I don't know, sovereign wealth funds, superannuation funds, large funds, are they running out of um, supply uh, of projects to invest in? There's the supply and demand and, yeah, the, the, the two in that usual intricate dance uh if we look at just new zealand uh you know the new zealand super fund back in 2014 or so said okay we we care about carbon we care about the planet and we are going to just look at all of our investments and in every sector that we're investing in we'll just invest in the the companies with better carbon performance and they've done that and they've actually they've, they've decarbonized their portfolio by quite a large amount. It's quite impressive, actually. But that's the kind of thing you can only do once. Um, and then you've got to start being a bit more active in terms of looking for the opportunities and helping people create the opportunities. So that's that's the next step that uh, we want to help with and that a lot of uh, institutional investors are taking right now. Mm. Yeah, and I think the um, the latest research from RIA, the Responsible Investment Association, Australasia, on the New Zealand um, benchmark of, of investment groups, similar to, to the Australian story, shows a continuing move away from negative screening as the main tool, which is, as you say, you know, just divesting or, or having a little bit less money in things that you think of negatively, like fossil fuels, or it could be other things like tobacco or um, uh, gambling, whatever it is. Um, 
and more towards an integrated approach, which is looking at risk and in some cases is actively engaging with particular investments that they might have, and in some cases is positively looking to say, well, what would we, rather than not doing something, what, what is a positive um, investment that we could take that would push along this particular agenda? And then there's a small category, but a very rapidly growing category, which is impact investment, um, which is where people are going into an investment, in some cases with a concessional return, um, but always with a particular policy goal in mind that they want to push along. And that mm. policy goal could be all sorts of things. But um, in, in uh, a number of cases that we've looked at, people have a, some kind of environmental um, measure that they have within their impact investment um, uh, objectives. And so that's that's interesting. It's it's off a very small base. You've always got to be careful about numbers that are growing really, really rapidly off a small number. But um, certainly, that's an, a growing area. Mm. Do you think New Zealand could be a technology maker in climate tech? You know, in in most regards, New Zealand's a technology taker. You know, we import cars and computers and building materials and iPhones and so on. To what extent is climate tech an opportunity for New Zealand to become an exporter of intellectual property? To quote the um, late and great Sir Paul Callahan, uh, you know, we're we're good at the weird stuff. We're good at the the niches. Uh, we're not going to have a a company here like Tesla because you just require so much more scale and connection there. Mm. But we are going to be good at some of the more specific things, um, and some of that's really driven by um, the research here. There's some really interesting research going on right now at one of the universities on catalysts for making ammonia and you know most ammonia goes into fertilizer um something like one percent of global emissions comes from just making ammonia because you've got to get it very hot and high pressure catalyst works under much more uh, benign conditions now if that research pays off then again that's that's a really big saving globally just from one you know potential change some of the opportunities come from um our regulatory situation, and we're very uh, supportive of some things which would be very diff- difficult overseas. Now, electric aviation could be a, a really big thing, um, especially for agricultural aviation. I mean, batteries don't last long enough to be flying, you know, to Australia or something. But if you're just flying around on a farm, um, brilliant. You know, potentially it's going to save you so much money potentially 80% cheaper to be you know, flying electric planes around farms. Um, and if you go in, you, know, you can imagine the sort of the crowded airspace they've got in, in, in Europe or America, you turn up and go, yeah, I want to fly a great big electric drone around. Is that okay? They're going to say no. We're going to say yes. So we have opportunities like that that just come from our you know, unique, unique circumstances. So, yeah, we can, we can do the niche stuff. And, and those niches add up to a decent amount. I think also, um, you know, I'm personally okay if we end up being a technology taker because sometimes we, um, sometimes the number eight wire mentality means people forget that if they just hit Google and say, has anyone already solved this problem? There's often a ready answer available to you. Um, but some, but of course, it's great if we can find our own innovations. Sometimes we actually are going to be doing a bit of both, I think, because, you know, I was looking at a tech the other day, which was um, something that works well at scale. And what do we not have in New Zealand? In many cases, we don't have scale. So the innovation that uh, this, this particular crew have been working on is finding a way to make it economic at much, much lower scale, um, lower population distribution, longer distances to travel, 
and mm. still and and of course the emissions don't care you know the 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 problem that we're dealing with uh, doesn't care whether it's in Invercargill or Shenzhen. So, um, if in some cases, if we are customising a technology for our particular circumstances, we may still find that there are good uh, niches, and the niches really do add up. That's one thing we have learned from this: is that um, you know even things that seem quite uh, minor, if you could find global application for them, or even just across a few countries, they certainly do add up. Uh, what do the Americans say? These are riches and niches. Um, <laughs> one thing New Zealand's really good at doing is growing trees. And I've had quite a few people on the show talking about the benefit of trees, but also the downside of trees. Do, do Does forestry feature in your list? And, and if so, what kind of forestry would be the most impactful? We're not forestry people. And you know, financing for forestry is sort of an established thing. Um, I guess there's there's kind of two things here. You can either develop new ways of reducing emissions, and that's that's where we want to be, or you can just go, okay, that's hard. Let's just plant lots of trees, offset all of our emissions, grow lots of carbon. And that's honestly that's that's pretty easy to start with, at least. And so we're globally we're just going to be doing a hell of a lot of that. I mean, New Zealand's uh, emissions inventory overall does really rely on not reducing our gross emissions, but reducing our net emissions by increasing afforestation. And, you know, pine trees, they grow really fast, they grow any way you like. That's, it's just technically easy. The problem is the politics. And the politics is, I think, going to be one of the really big uh, fights over the next sort of decade or so, because potentially we might end up replacing maybe all of our sheep and beef farms with forestry. Mm. We can certainly get paid a lot of money by overseas emitters for the carbon offsets that that'll create. But have we, are we really ready for that, um, you know, social dislocation um, and, and rural depopulation? Uh, that's, all of that's a political decision, um, but it's, it's, I think that's going to be a messy discussion over the next decade. The other problem is biodiversity. So, I mean, we when we plant more uh, Pinus radiata, we're not helping an overall um, biodiversity situation, which is declining year by year in New Zealand. So, the way our emissions trading scheme is structured and the, the fact that our native species grow a lot slower than um, than pine means that they're a, they're a fantastic place to store carbon, but it takes a lot longer to get there. So there is a school of thought that says that the um, there should be some kind of biodiversity credit or a, or a tweak to the emissions trading scheme so that planting native trees becomes faster and it becomes more economically efficient. Um, there are there are some research efforts around to try and make native trees grow faster, um, which we're not involved with, but which we've certainly looked at and are aware of. Um, that would be one way to bridge that gap, but it's certainly not easy and it, it simply won't happen. I mean, you're not going to get a turtle tree to grow as fast as a pine tree. It's That's just not the way that the plants work. But if the gap could be closed a little bit, that would be appealing. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting area. Um, and we, we try to, we're trying to take a bit of a systems approach to what we're doing. So if there's a biodiversity impact to what we're what we would be doing, we would want to um, have that factored in. And there is a potential out here, or at least an ameliorating factor, um, and that's that we don't have very good understanding of how rapidly native uh, forests take up carbon. And right now, we think that after sort of 30 years or so, if you're comparing pine with, with forests, 
pine will probably take up about 80 times as much as the native forests. In fact, natives grow really slowly. Uh, but there's some recent research underway that's really questioning that. And the difference might not be quite as bad as we think. So maybe the problem is going to get easier, but we've got to wait for that research to, to, to come along. And, and you know, ultimately, pines still grow really bloody fast. You can certainly see more from a government perspective where there will definitely be a, a role for native tree planting um, as part of a climate change response. Um, you know, so, I mean, an example I could think of would be on the Haraki Plains. Um, you know, you've got uh, streams and waterways that are not well, um, that are not protected. So there's water quality issues and uh, the area is very low-lying. So it's naturally going to become um, uh, flood, more flood-prone. It really wants to be a Kaikatea swamp. So if you're a government entity, why would you not work with farmers to do riparian planting of Kaikatea and coastal planting of Kaikatea? That's going to make it more um, resistant to flooding. It's going to help the quality of the waterways. It's going to help the quality of the um, water flowing into the Firth of Thames and so the aquaculture and so forth. So a whole range of... Um, environmental effects are going to happen there, but I'm, I'm just not sure where it lands in our list because uh, simply planting the kakatea is uh, not a difficult thing. Not um, a lot of tech I, involved in that. Last week uh, I spoke to uh, Adele Fitzpatrick from Trees That Count and her whole project is trying to bring the, the planters and the funders together and not necessarily in a high-tech way that you've described uh, and the projects you're looking at probably wouldn't, you know, that, that project wouldn't necessarily qualify in your list, I don't think, but what a terrific idea to, to join a government department with uh, a Trees That Count and in a context like the Hauraki Plains and create a scheme whereby everyone benefits. Um, and the, the funders, of course, are able to, uh, as I understand it, they are able to include that planting as part of their offsets, um, perhaps not in the ETS, but certainly from a, um, from a branding point of view, they're able to claim those credits. Yeah, I can think of another a number of cases where riparian planting um, has a, a huge benefit to, you know, a whole range of um, environmental areas. Um, so, I mean, another project that works alongside Adele's project in some cases is the um, Sustainable Business Network's Million Metres project. Uh, so, they, they collect corporate donations towards riparian planting. Um, and those are some of the other projects that... Um, you know, Jez mentioned the difficulty of agriculture, but some really basic stuff like better, better fencing and riparian planting and reducing runoff, none of which is very high tech, um, can mm. deliver huge benefits. And my guess mm. is there are still some quite some substantial benefits to be gained there. Yeah. I, I'm curious to know about your motivations in this. You know, you uh, are both uh, experienced consultants. Um, you could do work in other areas, probably uh, that's higher remuneration. But, you know, why are you interested in this? And maybe start with you, Roa, you out of bed to address these kind of problems. Why do you care? Um, I've been a, a, probably a pretty green-minded person for a long time, and I've spent a lot of my career working in and around technology. So really just trying to bring those two things together has been a bit of a stream of thinking for me for quite a while. And, you know, going into my own consulting practice almost four years ago, it seemed obvious to me that the technology, um, the effective application of technology, good business cases, good teams, good project management, um, good due diligence was going to be some of the things that would help to address this issue. And then mm. you build into it all of the... Um, 
you know the the unfolding unfolding disaster of bushfires and, and climate crisis, and um, the you know the the attempts of our governments to respond to that. And you just think this is an area that really needs a push along. Um, and you know, I'm hoping to help. It, it is a, it's not something I'm intending to do for free, and I'm not doing it for free now, but um, uh, it is something where the work's needed, and hopefully we can help. Mm, great. How about you, Jez? Well, people have talked about, you know, the, the, the Greta effect and, you know, trying to save the, the climate for the next generation. Um, I'm a bit more self-centred than that. I mean, I'm going to live, I don't know, another 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And if you think things are bad now, um, you know, California is getting a lot of news about the fires there, but also burning is Australia and Siberia and Portugal and Brazil and Indonesia and Greece. And that's right now. That's with maybe one degree of warming. And we're on track for four. So if we can, you know, work our asses off and get to three, that's a, a very much better world. Still pretty horrific. We can get to two and a half. That's starting to look like, you know, the kind of world that I'm going to want to live in. So really for me, I think it's, it's a feeling of, you know, our backs are to the wall. This is about self-preservation at this point. Mm. Yeah. Hey, it's been um, it's just been so great talking to you. And um, I'll, the best just won't get published for a while until your funder is ready to reveal themselves. But um, is there any way that people can get hold of you or participate in some way? To, how, how could they get on the list, for instance? I think the simplest uh, method would be to hit us up on social media. So um, both Jez and I are on Twitter. Um, that's a good way to get in touch. And, um, you know, the list isn't a magic list that sort of uh, gets you anywhere. It's um, it's essentially a New Zealand version of Project Drawdown with all the bright ideas that we've been able to throw at it. Mm. Um, changes all the time and we certainly welcome more ideas. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, um, Jez Weston and Rowan McMahon, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and uh, hopefully we'll speak again when you get closer to, um, uh, I suppose, revealing what maybe your first investments are. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.